John chapter 10, 17 to 21, my own initiative. For context, we'll begin at verse 1. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter by the door into the fold of the sheep, but climbs up some other way, he is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is a shepherd of the sheep. To him the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name, and leads them out. When he puts forth all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, because they know his voice. And a stranger they simply will not follow, but will flee from him, because they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus spoke to them, but they did not understand what those things were which he had been saying to them. Jesus therefore said to them again, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he shall be saved and shall go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they might have life and might have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hireling and not a shepherd, who is not the owner of the sheep, Beholds the wolf coming, and leaves the sheep, and flees, and the wolf snatches them, and scatters them. He flees because he is a hireling, and is not concerned about the sheep. I am the good shepherd, and I know my own, and my own know me, even as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep, which are not of this fold, I must bring them also, and they shall hear my voice, and they shall become one flock with one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. There arose a division again among the Jews because of these words, and many of them were saying, He has a demon and is insane. Why do you listen to him? Others were saying, These are not the sayings of one demon possessed. A demon cannot open the eyes of the blind, can he? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us the true and holy word of God. Thank you for showing us by this word the true way of salvation. Thank you from this passage for reminding us that Christ deliberately, intentionally, by your sovereignty, by your predetermined plan and foreknowledge, you sent him into the world for the express purpose of laying down his life that he might take it up again, not for himself, but for us, for our benefit, for his glory and for our good. We thank you, Father, that he has done so on our behalf. Yet, Lord, we pray that everyone who hears these words will believe them, will not flatter himself, will not pat himself on the back, and have false assurance of salvation, but will truly believe and will respond like those who say, one who is demon-possessed cannot heal the eyes of the blind, can he? And instead say, he is my Lord and Savior. I believe he died for me. May that kind of faith and repentance be here among us. And Father, may it not be that any of us who hear these words reject the word, reject faith, reject obedience, and even even to blaspheme Christ by saying that he has a demon and is insane. We ask, Lord, that these words will sink into our hearts and bear fruit 30, 60, and 100-fold. In Jesus' name, amen. We have come...
to the final part of this section of Scripture from John 9.1 to 10.21, the incident of the man born blind, healed, and then the aftermath of it, where there is opposition from the Pharisees and the parents of the blind man. The Pharisees are the main object of the target that Christ has in this passage. He is addressing them in the hearing of the disciples and in the hearing of the blind man now healed and saved also. We know that they are the target from chapter 9, verse 40. Those of the Pharisees who were with him heard these things and said to him, We are not blind too, are we? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no sin. But since you say, we see, your sin remains. Then in chapter 10, we learn, 10.1 and following, that Jesus calls the false teachers... The Pharisees, false teachers, he calls them thieves, robbers, strangers, and wolves. Thieves, robbers, strangers, and wolves. Christ is addressing them. And he's trying to tell and teach his disciples that they must make and must continue to make a distinction between true under-shepherds and false under-shepherds. And the way to do so is to understand their relationship to the Good Shepherd, Christ Jesus. Do they know Christ and do they preach Christ? Do they know Christ and preach Christ's cross, the cross of Christ, that He laid down His life and took it up again on behalf of the sheep? Is this what the true under-shepherds preach or not? And then the hearers of the under-shepherds, what do they hear? What do they understand? Do they, in faith and repentance, believe that Jesus Christ died and rose again for their sins? Do they believe that or not? If they don't believe it, they will say things such as verse 20. He has a demon and is insane. Why do you listen to him? They won't truly follow Christ. They won't believe in Him and they won't repent of sin. They won't do that and instead throw out these accusations about Christ and even those who adhere faithfully to the teaching of Christ. This is what they will say not only of Christ and His teaching, but also Christ's followers. They will say that of them. But on the other hand, if we are using our minds if we still have our sanity, we are being wise and not foolish. We will say, as in verse 21, a demon cannot open the eyes of the blind, can he? We will pursue the truth instead of rejecting the truth and walking away from it. Verse 17. More specifically, let's see what Jesus says. In verse 17, For this reason, the Father loves me. First, Christ reiterates, as he does in this book and elsewhere in Scripture, how often does he say, does he relate to us, that the Father loves him? The Father is on his side. The Father is with Christ. Christ the Son belongs to the Father, and the Father agrees with with the Son. And here in our verse, he says, The Father loves me. This fact of Scripture, we must understand that the Father loves the Son. The Father loves Christ. We cannot think of Christ in any other way, and we cannot think of the Father in any other way. The moment we mitigate that truth, the moment we try to compromise that truth, it will lead to heresy. It will lead to false doctrine. Whenever we try to separate the relationship of the Father to the Son, who they both are and the way that they relate to one another. The Father loves the Son. 3.35 John 3.35 The Father loves the Son 
and has given all things into his hand. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. He loves him in this way, in that he has given him all authority, which will come up again in 10.18. I have authority, Jesus says in 10.18. He has all this authority from the Father. Also, if we read in John 3.34, For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. The Father loves the Son in this way, that he sends the Son, and the Son speaks the words of God, and he gives the Spirit without measure. The Holy Spirit is given to those sheep. Verse 36, it's necessary to believe in the Son for eternal life. If we don't believe in him, we disobey him. And we won't see life. Instead, because we reject the Son of God, the wrath of God remains on us. If we reject the Son of God, since God loves the Son, then the wrath of God abides on us. John 5 and verse 20. 520. For the Father loves the Son and shows Him all things that He Himself is doing, and greater works than these will he show him that you may marvel. The father loves the son in this way, that he shows him all things which he himself is doing. This means that they both have the same counsel. They both have the same mind. They both have the same knowledge. They both have the same purpose. Whatever the two of them are doing they are in full agreement. There is nothing that the Father is doing behind the back of the Son. Nothing that the Father is doing that excludes His Son. They both are in unison. They both are united with one purpose. And He will show greater works that we might marvel. The ultimate great work happened on the cross, and on the day of resurrection. Those two are the biggest events of all of Scripture. And we must marvel when we think about those events. The purpose of the cross and the purpose of the resurrection, both to glorify God and to grant us salvation. John 15, verse 9. John 15, 9. Also on the Father loving the Son. 15.9 Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. Just as the Father loved the Son, the Son says He has loved us. Therefore, we should remain in that love. If we want to know, if we want to have a taste of this loving relationship between the Father and the Son, we are granted some knowledge of it, some access to it by understanding Christ's love toward us. Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. And then since... Christ has loved us. How are we going to stay in there? Stay in that love. Continue in that love. Abide in that love. Verse 10. If we keep His commandments. Jesus kept the commandments of the Father. So we should keep the commandments of Christ. And furthermore. We read in 17. John 17 22 to 26. John 17, 22 to 26. 
the love of the Father toward the Son and our relationship with that love. John 17, 22. And the glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one just as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity, that the world may know that you sent me and loved them as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am in order that they may behold my glory, which you have given me for you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, although the world has not known you, yet I have known you and these have known that you sent me and I have made your name known to them and will make it known that the love with which you loved me may be in them and I in them. Verse 23, you loved me. Verse 26, you loved me. And when did this love begin? Or did it have a beginning? No, because it says in 24, you loved me before the foundation of the world. The Father and the Son had this loving relationship before time began, before the foundation of the world. When the world was created, not only was matter created, but time was created. Time, space, and matter were created when the world was created. What happened before there was time? There was only eternity. God is eternal, and He dwelt in eternity past and will for eternity future. In that eternity past, before the foundation of the world, the Father loved the Son, and the Son loved the Father. That unbreakable bond of love and unity is what we see manifested in this world, and God grants to us to have a foretaste of that, a taste of that, a bit of a taste of that. Some now, and more for all eternity. Of course, since we are finite creatures, it will never be in the same way as the Father, Son, and Spirit, because they are eternal. Eternal persons, one God. It will not be to such an extent for all eternity that anybody could or should call us gods or little gods. That is impossible and that is wrong. That's blasphemy. It's heresy. It's only for the Father, Son, and Spirit. But in terms of our redemption, in terms of our relationship, in terms of our holiness, we do have the love of the Father and the Son and the Spirit in us now and forever. That's what we have. In John 10, 17, he tells us the reason here that the Father loves him. Because I lay down my life that I may take it again. The Son of God willingly comes into the world to lay down his life to take it up again. And for this reason, an additional reason, the Father loves the Son. Because the Son is willing that much to obey the Father. To such an extent that he experiences shame, misery, and death in the world, in the world that he created. The very world that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit created, the Son is willing to lay down his life and take it up again to experience the shame and misery and death in this world by the hands of godless men in order to redeem us. The Son did this. Laid down His life to take it up again. The Father knows this about His Son and has ordained this about His Son to lay it down and to take it up. For this reason, He loves Him. 
verse 18. In verse 18, no one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. When we think about the crucifixion, when we read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, or even when we read Isaiah or any other prophet where they describe the death of Christ, his arrest, his trials, his false trials by the hands of the Jews and the Romans, and then his crucifixion. Many people put a sentimental picture on all those events. They also put a a picture of man's free will in those events. That is not true. They think of it with much emotion and with much focus and belief in man's will, man's free will in that regard. However, the Bible does not permit us to do so. Yes, sinful man used his will, but sinful man was not out of control. The death of Christ was not plan B. There is a doctrine, there is a belief that is common. Whether people know the word or not, whether they know the name or not, the doctrine exists. With, in, in modern times, it's primarily called dispensationalism. In dispensationalism, they teach that God's initial plan, God's plan A, God's original purpose in sending Christ into the world was for Christ to be the conquering, victorious King of the Jews so that He establishes his earthly kingdom. If if the Jews would have believed that was God's first desire, His first plan, that the Jews believe in Christ, and when they believe in Christ, Christ will establish His kingdom on the earth where there is peace and prosperity because Christ is there and the Jews believe in Him. That's plan A. However, because plan A did not work, because they didn't respond accordingly, because the Jews used their free will to reject Christ, therefore, they crucified Him, and then God used that crucifixion in His plan B. This is what they believe. They may not all articulate it that way, and they may not all know the words, but that's what they believe. But this verse and other verses which we will see, they contradict that belief. We will see that before the foundation of the world and in the world through the prophets and in the world before the crucifixion and even after the crucifixion and resurrection, The Bible says clearly this was always God's intention to send Jesus into the world to die for sins, not to establish the earthly kingdom in his first coming. Not that at all. We must understand this carefully and correctly in relation to the will of God or purpose of God, decree of God, that Jesus did come to die for his sheep. It was always in the mind of God to do so. Our first example. Our first example is Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, verse 6. Isaiah 53, 6. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. We are like sheep, just like John 10. He dies for the sheep. Here it says, the Lord 
caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. If the Lord, meaning the Father, if the Father caused our iniquities to fall on Christ, does that not speak of intentional purpose? He was deliberate. God orchestrated it. God ordained it. God caused it to happen. Isaiah is preaching this. Isaiah preaches this event 700 years before Christ actually came into the world, which shows from the prophets that God told the prophets that this was always his plan. You might ask, well, what do the dispensationalists or others like them say about this verse? Well, they say that Isaiah wasn't preaching Christ. Isaiah was preaching somebody else, and then the apostles used these phrases and words in Isaiah and applied them to Christ. Isaiah did not mean Christ, but the apostles being misinterpreters and reinterpreters, they applied this verse to Christ. But no, Isaiah did mean Christ. Isaiah did preach Christ. Another place, Isaiah 53, 10. Notice two phrases there in 53, 10. But the Lord was pleased to crush him putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring, he will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. Obviously, verse 10, he's giving himself up to death, right? Even it says that in verses 11 and 12, bearing their iniquities, and then in verse 12, poured out himself to death. We are talking about death when he offers himself as a guilt offering. So was his death intentional by God the Father? Yes, it says, the Lord was pleased to crush him. Pleased to crush the Son, Christ. Further, verse 10 says, the the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. If you see in your Bible, you may have a note or your translation may render it differently as the will, the will or the good will of the Father. The will of the Father or the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. That shows that God's will was intentional and deliberate to put Christ on the cross. Matthew 26, Matthew 26 At the very moment of his arrest in Matthew 26, Jesus says the same. The time he's being arrested, nothing is out of control. Jesus says the same. Matthew 26, 47 to 56. Matthew 27, excuse me, uh, Matthew 26, 47. 26, 47. And while he was still speaking, behold, Judas, one of the twelve, came up, accompanied by a great multitude with swords and clubs from the chief priests and elders of the people. Now he who was betraying him gave them a sign, saying, Whomever I shall kiss, he is the one. Seize him. And immediately he came to Jesus and said, Hail, Rabbi, and kissed him. And Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you have come for. Then they came and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus reached and drew out his sword and struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, put your sword back into its place for all those who take up the sword shall perish by the sword. Or do you think that I cannot appeal to my father And he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels. How then shall the scriptures be fulfilled that it must happen this way? At that time, Jesus said to the multitudes, Have you come out with swords and clubs to arrest me as though I were a robber? Every day I used to sit in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets may be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. They come with Judas 
guiding them and showing, particularly, especially in the dark, in the Garden of Gethsemane, who is Jesus of Nazareth, so that they might arrest him. They do arrest him. And when one of the disciples, unnamed here, but it's Peter, Simon Peter, Peter took his sword out of its sheath and struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his ear. Jesus stops Peter from defending Jesus. And then in 53, he says, Or do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? If I wanted this arrest and crucifixion to stop, I could stop it right now. All I have to do is say a word to my father and he'll instantly send 12 legions of angels. And a legion had 6,000 troops. So 12 times 6,000 troops. I could easily call upon God to send these and I would be delivered. But I'm not going to do that because this is on purpose. It's on purpose also because of 54. How then shall the scriptures be fulfilled that it must happen this way? It must happen this way. Why must it happen? It has to happen this way because God wanted it to happen and God told Isaiah and other prophets that this is exactly God's intention. It must happen like this. 55, Jesus reminds them that he used to sit every day in the temple teaching and you didn't seize me. Why did you not have the ability to lay a single hand on me at that time? Because God withheld that ability from you during all those times every day. And 56 again, all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets may be fulfilled. If it's written in the scriptures of the prophets, it's going to be fulfilled. Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2 and verse 22. Acts 2, 22 to 23. Acts 2, 22 to 23. We have Peter preaching. Peter, Simon Peter. 2.22. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. This man, delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. The predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. Who is in control? The godless men who put him to death? No. The predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God is in control. Chapter 4, Acts chapter 4, 27 to 28. Acts 4, 27 to 28. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. It's predestined or predetermined to occur. And when did that predestination or predetermination take place? The answer is in 2 Timothy Chapter 1. 2 Timothy chapter 1, 8 to 11, or 8 to 10. 2 Timothy 2, excuse me, 2 Timothy chapter 1, 8 to 10. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God who has saved us. And called us with the holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity, from all eternity, but now has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through 
the gospel. From all eternity, God had a purpose and grace to grant us in Christ. And then in time, in the world, Christ appeared. He abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Predetermined before the foundation of the world, and it occurred in time and space. And finally, Revelation 13, 8. Revelation 13, 8. And all who dwell on the earth will worship him, everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who has been slain. Christ is called the Lamb who has been slain. And when was it that our names were written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who has been slain? All of those concepts are all put together in this one verse. Revelation 13 and verse 8. Next we find in John 10, 18, that Christ says he has authority and that this commandment I received from my Father. Christ is teaching us that it is a commandment of the Father to die and rise again for us, to die and rise again for us. A commandment from the Father that is given to Him to carry out. Explicitly, He says in 17 and 18, that I may take it again. In 18, I have authority to take it up again. It is in the hand of Christ to raise his own dead body. Which is also what he says in John 2, John 2, 18 to 22, that he raises his own dead body up from the grave. John 2, 18 to 22. The Jews therefore answered and said to him, What sign do you show to us, seeing that you do these things? Jesus answered and said to them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews therefore said, It took 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. This authority, as the divine Son of God, he never compromised or lost or suspended his deity. He always had deity. And in his deity, he could raise his own humanity, his own dead humanity up from the grave, which is what he's saying. He has the power, the authority, and the commandment to do. This also proves that this is all by the will of God, and Jesus gladly carries it out. The will of the Father and the will of the Son to accomplish our redemption. Let's also not miss the fact that Christ repeats, as he does often, that he loves, he enjoys, he focuses on, it's his pleasure to obey the Father. He calls it this commandment. He knows it's a commandment of the Father, but he delights in carrying it out. John 4:34 Jesus said to them 4:34 My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. He loves to do the will of the Father and to accomplish his work. John 8:29 John 8:29 And he who sent me is with me He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. I always do the things that are pleasing to him. John 12, 44. This is one of the longest passages on Jesus asserting this fact. 
John 12, 44 to 50. 12, 44 to 50. And Jesus cried out and said, He who believes in me does not believe in me, but in him who sent me. And he who beholds me beholds the one who sent me. I have come as light into the world that everyone who believes in me may not remain in darkness. And if anyone hears my sayings and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. He who rejects me and does not receive my sayings has one who judges him. The word I spoke is what will judge him at the last day. For I did not speak on my own initiative, but the Father himself who sent me has given me commandment what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. Therefore, the things I speak, I speak just as the Father has told me. How in the world will anyone have access to God the Father? Everyone wants to go to heaven. Everyone wants to belong to God. Everyone wants to have salvation and eternal life. At least those who announce it. They say they want it, right? And there are many, many people like that. However, they cannot go to the Father. They cannot please the Father unless they do it in the Son. And just as the Son speaks every word that the Father wanted... The word that he spoke, he says in 50, verse 50, I know that his commandment is eternal life. He was desirous of doing the will of the Father by preaching the words of the Father. So we should also preach the words of the Father because his commandment is eternal life. However, In this passage, it also asserts that many people hear the Scriptures. They hear the words of Christ, but they don't believe them. They don't repent of sin. They don't follow them. They don't obey them. And when they don't obey the words of Christ, they reject the Father. They reject God the Father who sent the Son. Verse 44, he who believes in me does not believe in me, but in him who sent me. 48, he who rejects me and does not receive my sayings has one who judges him. The word I spoke is what will judge him at the last day. They won't have a good day of judgment. It will be a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Hebrews 10, 31. A true believer, just as Jesus loved to obey the Father, a true believer will also want to obey the Father. John 15, John 15 and verse 10. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. The Son obeyed the Father. If we know the Father, and if we know the Son, we will also obey the Father. Obey the commandments of the Father. These days, there is another heresy. Usually the heretics bring up the word first. Usually the heretics who actually practice it bring up the accusation first. That is, whenever we talk about obedience, obeying the Father, obeying Christ, obeying the Bible, living faithfully, they will immediately say, you are a Pharisee. They will immediately say, you are a legalist. They will immediately say, you believe in works salvation, works righteousness. They will say words like that in accusation to those who want to follow Christ as we are talking about here. They will say that. 
when actually they are the Pharisees. They are the hypocrites. They are the legalists. The ones who don't want to obey God by His Word, they want to obey their will and the will of men, the traditions of men, the traditions of the elders, whatever it may be. They want to obey someone else or something else outside of Scripture. So they are the true legalists. They are the true hypocrites. They are the true Pharisees. Not the people who are saying, this is what Scripture says, so we must believe it and obey it. They are not the ones who are the true Pharisees. The true Pharisees are the ones who don't want to obey what the Bible says. Furthermore, furthermore, this obedience, when he says, this commandment I receive from my Father, we must say one more time that it has to do with the death of Christ. We must say it one more time because people don't want to say it or emphasize it. Firstly, let's prove that we are talking about the death of Christ. Didn't he say in verse 11, John 10, 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Did he not say also in verse 15, and I lay down my life for the sheep? And did he not say in 17, I lay down my life that I may take it again? And in 18, I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. Is he not talking about his own death and resurrection? Yes, he is. So Christ himself, in front of the Pharisees, is talking about his own death and resurrection. He himself is emphasizing his own death and resurrection. If Jesus emphasized his own death and resurrection, should we not emphasize his own death and resurrection? Of course we should. This is the relationship of this obedience or this commandment to faithfully preach, faithfully believe and obey the purpose of his death and resurrection. Romans 5, Romans 5, 19. Romans 5, 19. For as through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one the many will be made righteous. The obedience of the one, the disobedience of Adam brought sin and death in the world. But the obedience of Christ brings righteousness and life in the world to those who are in Christ. The obedience of Christ by His death. Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 8. Philippians 2, 8. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. His obedience was to the commandment of the Father, which resulted in his own death, even a humiliating death, the death of a slave, the death of a criminal, the death of of a Roman cross. Hebrews 5.8 Hebrews 5.8 Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. He learned obedience from the things which he suffered. Moreover, when we think about this death of Christ, it also relates to the reaction of the people. We have to always remind ourselves to preach the cross of Christ. It is the cross of Christ that people don't want to hear. When they hear that King Jesus, King Christ, King Messiah, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords came into the world to be humiliated, to be tortured, to be put on the cross, to be put to death, people don't like to hear that. 
They want to hear about peace and prosperity, health and wealth, fame and fortune. That's what they want to hear about. The, the sinful ears, the fleshly ears want to hear that. They don't want to hear about death, suffering, affliction, hardship that Jesus experienced. And if we attach ourselves to him, then we also, being the body of Christ and he's our head, we have to experience the same. People don't want to hear that. They don't want to hear it because they don't want that the rest of their life, but they also don't want to hear it because they don't want to reject their sin. Their sin. And therefore, they will say, Jesus is crazy. Or you who preach Jesus that way, you also are crazy. And today, they will call all of us madmen, crazy, demonically possessed, Legalists, Pharisees, hypocrites, negative, pessimists, on and on. They'll call us these things if we're preaching against sin in relation to the cross of Christ. That's what they'll call us. And that's what happened here. Notice what happened here in verses 19 to 21. There arose a division again among the Jews because of these words. Because of these words, the same in 9 and verse 40, chapter 9, verse 40, those of the Pharisees who were with him heard these things. Christ is preaching his own death and resurrection, and it's unfathomable to them. It sounds crazy and wild to them. It sounds so weird to them, they want nothing to do with belief in his death and resurrection. So, Among the Jews, there are some who are blatantly attacking it, and they say there arises a division. The Word of God, the true Word of God, brought division. So Jesus is not to be blamed for bringing about this kind of division. When division occurs, when the truth is spoken, the speaker, the preacher, the messenger is not to be blamed for the truth. The hearers who refuse to believe that truth are to be blamed. Jesus is not blamed here in verses 19 to 21 for creating division among the Jews. And when division happens, when division happens based on speaking the truth, then fine. It needs to happen. Jesus said in Matthew 10, Matthew 10 34, Matthew 10, he says, 34 to 36, or we'll we'll read 34 to 39. Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be the members of his household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life shall lose it. And he who has lost his life for my sake shall find it. Matthew 10, 34 to 39. Christ says he didn't come to bring peace on the earth. He came to speak the truth. And when the truth is spoken... It will cause divisions in families, in households. Someone once said, it doesn't say husband and wife. If we go to Luke, Luke 14, 25 to 26, Jesus says wife there. It includes wife. Or if the wife is a believer and the husband is an unbeliever, it would include him. Depends on who the unbeliever is, who rejects the truth. Jesus, when speaking the truth, caused division. And that kind of division is okay. God intends for that to happen. So that there arises a distinction in who the believers are and who the unbelievers are. In Deuteronomy 13.3, if a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you, and he performs a miracle and it comes true, 
concerning which he says, Let us go and follow other gods and serve them. You shall not listen to that prophet or that dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God is testing you to know if you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. Deuteronomy 13.3 God tests us both when truth is spoken and even when falsehood is spoken to know how we will respond to the truth and to the lies. How are we going to respond? In this case, we have two main responses, verse 20 and 21. Many of them were saying, many, he has a demon and is insane. Why do you listen to him? Which is not the first time that they accused him of demonic possession or insanity. In John chapter 7, verse 20, the multitude answered, You have a demon. Who seeks to kill you? You have a demon. In John 8, 48, 8, 48, the Jews answered and said to him, Do we not rightly say that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. Verse 52, 8.52, the Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died and the prophets also, and you say, If anyone keeps my word, he shall never taste of death. They accused him of demonic possession. Why? Because he preached the cross, the death and resurrection of himself. This happened to Jesus, and it will also happen to you and me. If we preach the cross, they will also call us fools and our doctrine foolishness. 1 Corinthians 1, 1 Corinthians 1, 18 to 25. 1 Corinthians 1, 18 to 25. For the word of the cross is to those who are perishing foolishness. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God. God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified to Jews, a stumbling block, and to Gentiles, foolishness. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. The word of the cross is foolishness. Jews, because the Jews are looking for miracles, and to Greeks, because they're looking for wisdom. Wisdom, human wisdom, intelligence, philosophy. They are looking for that. The Jews and the Greeks boast in the wrong place. In Galatians, Galatians 6, 14, or 11 to 17, in Galatians 6, 11 to 17, the Jews are boasting in the flesh, boasting in man, boasting in men. But Paul says in Galatians 6, 14, but may it never be that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which The world has been crucified to me and I to the world. No boasting in anything except the cross. Even if they call us fools, if they call us insane, crazy, and demonically possessed, let's preach the cross. And finally, There are usually two outcomes. Either people will reject the message or accept the message. And even the acceptance of the message is not always immediately redemption and salvation. 
It might be understanding and going in the direction of the truth. It will be one or the other. In verse 20, it says, they accused him of demonic possession and insanity. So there's no point listening to him anymore. In 21, the others were saying, a demon-possessed man doesn't help a blind man see. They do all kinds of weird and odd miracles, the demons do, but they don't do good things that benefit people and produce salvation, which is what happened to the blind man in chapter 9. Not only did it benefit him in that his physical eyes were opened, but Jesus, when he preached to him, his spiritual eyes were opened, right? Demons don't do that. They will perform all kinds of odd miracles, but they won't preach sound doctrine to benefit the healed man. They won't do that. Jesus did. And these people understand it. There will, there will always be two outcomes when we preach. There will be two outcomes when we preach. Acts chapter 6. Just a couple of examples from Acts, the book of Acts. Examples that are not typically brought up in the book of Acts. This happens frequently when the apostles and other disciples preach. But Acts chapter 6, let's begin at verse 7. 7 to 15. You'll notice here two main groups. Acts 6, 7. And the word of God kept on spreading, and the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. That's the good group. Verse 8. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people. But some men from what was called the synagogue of the freedmen, including both Cyrenians and Alexandrians, and some from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and argued with Stephen. And yet they were unable to cope with the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly induced men to say, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. And they stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and dragged him away and brought him before the council. And they put forward false witnesses who said, This man incessantly speaks against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Nazarene Jesus will destroy this place and alter the customs which Moses handed down to us. And fixing their gaze on him, all who were sitting in the council saw his face like the face of an angel. Two responses. A great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith, but others in the council said no. And they incited worthless men to attack Stephen. And we know what happened. By the end of Acts chapter 7, he is stoned to death. Another place where we find two outcomes is in Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13, verse 44. Acts 13, 44 to 52. 13, 44. And the next Sabbath, nearly the whole city assembled to hear the word of God. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began contradicting the things spoken by Paul and were blaspheming. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly and said, It was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you first, since you repudiate it and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For thus the Lord has commanded us, I have placed you as a light for the Gentiles, that you should bring salvation to the end of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as had been appointed to eternal life, Believed, and the word of the Lord was being spread through the whole region. But the Jews aroused the devout women of prominence and the leading men of the city and instigated a persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. 
But they shook off the dust of their feet in protest against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were continually filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. The whole city nearly comes to hear the gospel. And many appointed to eternal life believed and they spread the gospel throughout the region. 52 says, the disciples were continually filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. That's the good outcome. Eternal life and continual joy and the Holy Spirit. But the others, the Jews, and those they aroused, the, the city authorities that they aroused to persecute Paul and Barnabas, they didn't believe and whoever they persuaded did not believe and they drove out Paul and Barnabas from their district. Two outcomes. Some believe and some don't. Was Paul at fault for what he said? Because he didn't have 100% success? No. Was Stephen at fault in Acts chapter 6 because he didn't have 100% success? In fact, they stoned him to death. Was Stephen at fault? No. Was Jesus at fault because he did not have 100% success in John chapter 10? No. We must speak the truth and let the fruits, the results, be determined by God. If many were appointed to eternal life, they will believe. Acts 13, 48. If they weren't appointed, they won't believe. We just must be faithful to preach the truth. Preach the truth of the cross and against man's sin. For the glory of God and the redemption of men. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.